This is UCD Business Impact. Each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, on this podcast, we've addressed the theme of managing in a crisis multiple times. We've spoken to some of the leading academic authorities on the subject over recent months, but we are open to the mild critique that while it works in theory, does it work in practice? Well, today's guest allows us to truly find out, as he is a true crisis manager. Irishman and Limerick native Michael Dowling is CEO of Northwell Health, a US healthcare company which employs 74,000 people and has astonishing revenues of $13.5 billion. It's the largest healthcare company or provider in New York State. And to be honest, it's been tested like no other healthcare company in America by COVID-19, treating more patients than any other healthcare company privately owned. Michael is one of America's top healthcare and hospital CEOs and has previously worked at Blue Cross Blue Shield and plus spent 12 years working for the New York State government. He is a UCC graduate, but luckily for us, this institution, UCD, has also awarded him an honorary degree. And in his role as crisis manager, he has been showcasing what he's learned in a new book called Leading Through a Pandemic, The Inside Story of Humanity, Innovation, and Lessons Learned During the COVID Crisis. And his probably singular achievement that stuck out to me, of course, he has been the Grand Marshal of the New York St. Patrick's Day Parade as well. So you're very welcome to the podcast, Michael. Oh, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be part of this. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Now, I know you're very busy, so thanks, first of all, for giving us the time at all. I know cases numbers in the New York area, certain parts at least, are starting to creep up again, so I don't want to hold you up too long because there is literally no uh, very important things to attend to. You have the book out, so you've kind of learned things from when this first came in February and March. Uh, getting an exact fix on the date when it all started is, is of course uh, still up in the air a little bit because nobody really knows ultimately but you have been dealing with an extraordinary set of events when did you first learn about COVID-19 when did it first kind of come on your personal radar if you can remember back that far at this stage uh, yeah it came to our attention obviously uh, because of what was happening in Wuhan in, in China and that was in January early January we track these things, uh, my organization, we track these things on an ongoing basis. So we're pretty up to date all the time on what's happening across the world because it's important to have early alerts. So we were watching what was happening in Wuhan. And in mid-January, we decided uh, to reactivate our emergency preparedness infrastructure here, uh, which we've used multiple times over the past decade because of other issues that have occurred. So we activated that in mid-January, got ourselves prepared, and we were fully believing that it would come to New York. Uh, we were a little bit surprised at the beginning that it took so long to come to New York. Uh, the first cases were not uh, until the uh, beginning of March, but we already had put our infrastructure in place, our team in place, um, uh, which was not that difficult for us because uh, we've had that infrastructure, as I've just mentioned, for quite a while. We got our first cases in early March, March 5th, and it was very, very slow. We, the cases were creeping up. I, I remember vividly that it was, I think, on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, that we had around 75 cases, um, which is not a lot for us. Uh, but uh, in talking to our clinical experts and our other emergency management people, everybody assumed it would get bigger. It started to increase the end of March. 
And then um, it really went loose and went crazy at the first week in April. So by April 5th, we had in the hospitals as inpatients, 3,500 COVID patients, a dramatic, dramatic increase. And that lasted for a week or two. It started then to very slowly decrease. Um, but, um, you know, when you're in healthcare, you have to be adaptable. You have to be resilient. Uh, you have to be willing to change quickly. And we were able to deal with this quite well. And of course, uh, I was very, very involved with the governor and the state of New York in trying to organize all of the other health uh, systems and the other parts of the health infrastructure across New York uh, to get prepared for this and respond to it. Now, Michael, you left, you're, you're gone from Ireland, as I understand it, a number of decades ago. You have uh, come back to do work here from time to time and chair some commissions and so on. Yeah. But did anything in your previous career or your previous life up to this point prepare you for this sort of thing? Or is there things you can draw from from your past in terms of your career or, or other moments you can think of? Well, um, you know, I'm not one that, uh, you know, gets excessively stressed out. Uh, I, I tend to get a little bit calm in crisis uh, because it doesn't benefit anybody just to go a little bit nuts when there is a crisis going on around you. You've just uh, you got to keep your teams calm. But, you know, I left home when I was very young. I mean, I left home when I was 16 originally. And uh, so I've been I've been through difficult circumstances like that. I left home for economic reasons. I came to the United States when I was almost 18, just about 18, uh, by myself. Um, so I, I'm used to, you know, taking risk, being in difficult circumstances. Um, but everything is relative. You know, whenever you think you're in the middle of a difficult circumstance, all you got to do is sit back, look around at what's happening in the world, and looking at what's happening in Afghanistan or in Iraq or other places, you realize that however difficult you think you're having it, it is relatively mild, exquisitely mild compared to what's happening in other places. So it's important to keep that perspective in place. The other thing I would mention, and I was in government, I was the head of health and human services for the state of New York for many, many, many years. And the only other issue that was difficult like this was uh, the AIDS epidemic in New York, which I was in the middle of, and the crack epidemic, the drug epidemic. Uh, but this, however, was more extensive and was by far the worst that I have been through uh, in, in, in this environment. Uh, but again, the important thing here is in a crisis is to stay calm, to stay optimistic, to have a winning attitude, and uh, you know not fall victim uh, to playing. Uh, that playing the role of victim or have a defeatist attitude. That doesn't help. And Michael, why do you think, as the man who was right in the centre of the storm in New York, why do you think that was the city that first uh, took the biggest amount of cases? Is it just because it's such an international city and inevitably it was going to creep in from other places? Or was there some other dynamic going on that New York was kind of first up with, with those big numbers? Well, yeah, well, it, it, you know, it occurred out in the West Coast and the Seattle area in the, uh, the, at the beginning, but uh, New York got hit, we, we were the epicenter, and it's because of the, it is an international city, it has, uh, you know, the international airports, uh, you know, millions and millions of people come through New York every year. Um, transport globally was much easier and has become much easier over the decades. New York is also highly concentrated populations in sections of New York. Uh, and you do have po pockets of poverty like you do in every city and 
pockets of deprivation where people are living very closely together. You have a you know, massive subway system where people, I don't know how many people are listening, have been in the subways in New York at seven in the morning where people are packed in like sardines. So you have a whole number of circumstances like this all coming together. So it's not at all surprising that when something happens globally, like a virus uh, that doesn't need a passport to travel, it just travels uh, like all diseases have traveled over the centuries. Um, you know, when people came to the United States way at the very, very beginning, I, you know, uh, they, they brought measles with them, which was a plague, uh, which almost obliterated the Indian population, the native Indian population that was here. So uh, when you're in a city like New York, you have to be prepared for these things. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that it's actually in the book as well, at the beginning of the book. Uh, it's one of the reasons that we started to develop a culture of preparedness in my organization and develop the infrastructure to deal with crises like this, because we knew, given our location, we were going to have crises. We didn't know what kinds, but you have to prepare for them. And if you're any organization, any place, you just don't plan for today. You actually have to be also planning for the inevitability of difficult things happening tomorrow and, and put your teams in place and your planning in place way in advance. We did that, and that, of course, dramatically helped us. And Michael, we've had uh, an issue we've explored on this podcast before, which is, as you said, readiness. We had um, Angus Kelly, who's the CEO of Aircap, which is one of the largest aircraft leasing companies in the world. And we've had a few other people on the podcast who've talked about these once in a century events, these low probability, high impact events. And I've been kind of teasing that idea out with them of how do you prepare for something that's going to happen you know, once every 100 years if you go back to the Spanish flu? And what I mean by that is, if you said to say your shareholders or your owners, you know, we're going to have X amount of ICU beds just in reserve in case this kind of um, low, or sorry, should I say low probability event suddenly happens, they might not necessarily thank you. So how do you kind of have buffers built up and provisos in place for these kind of very infrequent events without people saying to you, well, you know, you've got precious resources tied up that really we don't need and are highly unlikely to be needed. How do you make that argument uh, for you, for, for, as you've already explained it, to have those kind of um, comfort blankets in place for when a big crisis does come along? Well, you don't, uh, you know, it's not like you sit back and you say, I'm developing a plan with all of the unbelievable detail for something that is extraordinary that might happen 15, 20 years from now. You basically look at your organization and you say, if I have any kind of a crisis any place, at any time, however big or however small, what are the central ingredients that I need to have? And uh, basically, you know, let's, let's just check them off a little bit. One is you need to have the right people in your organization who are very resilient and adaptable. That's number one. People who can change quickly. Um, you have to have leadership in your organization at all levels. Uh, that are, are, are in, very interesting in, in keeping people highly motivated during a crisis. You have to have your infrastructure in place for supplies. Um, you know, do, do you have uh, the supplies, especially in healthcare, uh, in place? Are you know where you can get them so that you can keep your employees safe? Do you have the lab capability uh, to be able to do a lot of testing for whatever might happen? So we have been doing these incrementally over the years. It's not like I went and sat down with people and said, let's put together just a plan for a massive pandemic. No, I said, put a plan for crises. And if it evolves into a pandemic, then we got to modify the plan. But we got the core basic ingredients 
Um, it's like being an athlete. You know, you, you, you know the people who play in the All-Ireland Hauling Final, uh, they play all along during the year. They get fit. They just don't get up one morning and say, I'm only going to uh, train for the All-Ireland. You train for next week's game and the week after that. And as you do that, you'll become very, very fit to eventually be able to play in the big leagues. That analogy is, applies here as well. Uh, with regard to beds, uh, you mentioned this. Mm. I don't have extra beds all set aside, empty, uh, just sitting there in case I have a pandemic. That's not how we operate. Mm. I mean, is there a particular moment that sticks in your mind for when you really kind of learn something about this crisis, you know, a kind of a turning point in the management mm -hmm. of it? Uh, yes, I were, I were multiple uh, moments, but I, I, I remember one very vividly. Um, you know, those of us that work in the healthcare arena, you know, we're around hospitals all the time and other facilities. And so you're used to what a hospital looks like and feels like uh, when you're in it. But I remember in the middle of the COVID crisis, in one of our major hospitals here, is a hospital with about a thousand beds. Uh, we were pretty much um, packed with COVID. Everybody was pretty much COVID. And I remember walking uh, through the ICUs, the intensive care units, which by the way, I did almost every day, um, meeting with the staff. I remember walking through the floor of that hospital and it was packed with COVID, most people in the ICU and many, many people on vents. And I remember how quiet it was, eerily quiet, because hospitals are typically not quiet. Nobody was talking, because everybody was so sick. And there were no visitors, of course. The only people that were there were staff. And of course, all the staff were masks and wearing gowns and shields, etc. And um, there were very quiet, muffled voices. The eerie, eerie sound, eerie quiet was absolutely extraordinary. I remember thinking, this is something I have never heard before. I never heard the quiet before. And as you walk through the floor, you're looking at all of the patients, and you realize that at that time, about 60% of the people that you were looking at would probably not make it. But that was one instance. The other, um, another one was when I met a staff person, a nurse on the floor, because I spent a lot of time with employees. And uh, a nurse um, had come out of a room while I looked a little distressed. I went and talked to her and, just, uh, and she told me that her mother had just died on that same floor. Wow a few minutes prior. That's and what was also amazing subsequent to that was, I said to her, why don't you take a little time and relax? You probably need, you should take the day off. She said, no, I'm staying with my team. I'm staying here until the end of my shift. Nothing I can do now other than help other people. And there were multiple, multiple experiences like this. And Michael, what, what kind of toll has all of this taken on, obviously you're, you're the person I'm talking to now, but also the, the wider staff. I mean, you'll probably only really fully be able to assess it when it's all over. But, yeah. Uh, well, what's your kind of take at this stage of the mental health, the blows to people's morale, confidence, you know, I everything think, that's happened? Yeah, I think, you know, people have, will have some long-term effects here. Um, some people will handle it. Most people will handle it quite well. Other people will probably need some support. And some people are needing some support now, which we are providing. Uh, yesterday, I held an event here for all of our staff who, subsequent to us having the crisis here, after it died down, uh, I asked to see whether or not our staff 
uh, that would be willing to travel to other parts of the country to help others that were in dire circumstance. And we got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. We ended up sending uh, well over 100 employees to Puerto Rico, Georgia, Utah, Texas, etc. So I met with all of these people yesterday to say thank you. And these are people that had just gone through um, our COVID crisis, which was the worst in the United States. And then right after, they decided to go to other places and spend weeks helping deal with COVID patients in other states. And when I was talking to them yesterday, they were, all of them said they have been changed by this. Uh, they were so, so proud that they could help, but they will never completely be the same. Not necessarily all in a negative way. Some have been in a positive way, that they appreciate life a lot more. They appreciate family and community a lot more. They appreciate the fragility of, of, of humans and what can happen so quickly to somebody who yesterday was healthy and today um, is no longer with us. Now, in healthcare, we deal with this on a continuing basis. That's what we do. But nothing to the extreme of the COVID crisis, where we had at some point during April, we had 90 deaths a day in our facilities. And can I ask you, Michael, um, something that I've been kind of fascinated by? Who were the dead? And what I mean by that is, obviously, they were told by the statistic modeling or modelers that they're older people and so on. But but leaving that aside, what in in the New York context? Or what ethnic group are they? What income group are? What geography are they from? Like like in other words, is yeah. there skews that you noticed as patients were were coming in and out of the hospital, or or was it just everyone and everyone? Yes. Now uh, it it. it disproportionately affect the minority community and African-American community uh, disproportionately affect those people who live in poorer communities, densely populated communities, people who uh, had, uh, you know, if they had a combination of obesity, diabetes, hypertension, were a much higher risk. It didn't mean that this does not mean that people in other well-to-do communities didn't pass away from this. They did but it disproportionately affected those communities. Uh, and so we, we now have the ability to do early have an early warning surveillance system where we can tell whether or not we're having circumstances that could emanate, that could evolve into a COVID crisis, and we can do it by zip code in New York. Uh, we can wow. do it by the block. We have very sophisticated uh, early warning systems today. So we're, we're monitoring those locations where you have high-density Poverty, you know, a lot of the social determinants of health issues, we monitor that now on a daily, daily basis so that we can, see, we can get an early warning about what might be happening in the future. And Michael, as a crisis manager yourself, just taking you, uh, you know, zoning in on what you were doing and on what you continue to do. I mean, a lot of people in the kind of role you hold, there's a lot of meetings, there's a lot of um, responsibilities, you have to sign off on sets of accounts, you have certain uh, regulatory things you have to attend to. How did you kind of decide to divvy up your own time during the last few months? How, how did, you, did that change much or did you kind of stick to your, the trident to things that you, you have always done in the job? Well, during the COVID, we were primarily just dealing with COVID. I mean, in the normal circumstances, they were dealing with all of the other illnesses that people come in for, cardiac issues, neuro issues, OB issues, et cetera. But we had deferred most of those surgeries, not all, but most. We had closed down a lot of our other facilities. Uh, we closed down almost everything except for the hospitals and um, because we needed the staff. We needed to redeploy the staff uh, into the facilities. And that's, that's the ability to be very, very adaptable 
quickly. Uh, but during the height of the COVID, it was pretty much all COVID. And I, you know, I benefit an awful lot from having very, very good people working for me, which is absolutely key. It's not what I did. It's what I allowed other people to do. So I have a very strong team. They were in control. They knew what to do. Uh, we had meetings uh, every morning at 8 o'clock, every, mo- every day in the middle of the day and in the afternoon where we, we had a very sophisticated dashboard of data that we were able at, across all of our system in every location, and we were able to monitor this and make the appropriate adjustments as we needed to. I, I spent a lot of my time during it uh, out in the facilities, out with the staff, communicating directly with staff, uh, I spent an extraordinary amount of time on, on, on with the media. I was pretty much on every television station in, in, in America um, and all of the premier ones. I used to do TV two or three times a day, radio um, multiple times a day. And, and why, did you, why did you do that, Michael? Why was that particularly important to do that, did you think, at that time? Well, I, it, uh, it came to us. I never reached out and said I okay. wanted to do this. I had the media calling us. Uh, saying uh, we would like to know what exactly is going on inside. And I am am not hesitant at all to be out front. Uh, So I said yes to every communication I got from the media. My answer was a universal yes. So nobody else, there was no other CEO that I can recall that was not there at all. Uh, But I decided to do it because I think it's important to communicate. You communicate to your own staff. You communicate to, to the public. Communication in a crisis is absolutely crucial. You cannot overdo it. You need to, you need to be truthful, deal with reality, uh, have, a, have a positive, upbeat attitude about the possibility and the, and the realization that you will succeed at the end of the day. That's what people want to hear. Uh, so it was very important to be out there to the public and to our own staff. And it was highly, highly appreciated. But it was not like, well, I went out and said, please get me on TV. I, didn't ever, I never did that. I never would do that. Uh, it came to us. And I, I had no problem uh, keeping people uh, apprised of it. Um, and Michael, that's, that's one of the learnings then, isn't it? The communication. But what, what are the other ones? Because your book does zone in on learnings in particular. And over back here in Ireland, you're, um, you know, we're, we've been struggling. The strategy has got kind of reformulated and reshaped. You know, we have a suppression strategy, but it seems to be very, very difficult to get the numbers down to a place where it's kind of seen as acceptable that they're down at a level where we can all get on with our lives. I mean, is there learnings for people here in Ireland, the authorities, the healthcare managers? Can you talk to me a little bit about the kind of things you might be able to pass on to our listeners? I would say, yeah, you know, there's a lot of learnings here. One is that masks work. This sounds very simple. If you wear the mask and you do it consistently and you social distance when you need to, uh, you, will keep, you will get this thing under control. Where you have a problem and where we're having a problem in New York today in certain communities is where people decide they don't want to comply by wearing a mask. I mean, it is a simple thing. And I know that in Ireland, uh, where there has been problems, it is also due in a major part to the fact that people just don't want to comply. This idea that it's interfering with your freedom, that's all a lot of hogwash. So that has to be continuous communication about this. You have an obligation to the people around you, to the community in general, not to infect others. So you've got to wear the mask. Communication, communication, communication. Uh, it has to be consistent and it has to be truthful. Uh, inside your organizations, inside the facilities that have to deal with this, I mean, having an in, a, 
infrastructure that can deal with disasters is important. Being out directly with your staff is important. Making sure that your staff know that you are with them in the middle of a crisis like this is key. Obviously, I don't necessarily get in, need to get into this, I suppose, but having the supplies, having the lab ability, having the lab capability to do the testing, all of that is important. But where we are right now is compliance with regard to the public. The public has to comply. Everybody says, well, we got to get the economy back. Well, the economy is never coming back unless the people who want it back comply. We have this place, we have this in this country. We have leadership in this country that is going around there not wearing masks, hosing, holding big political meetings where nobody's wearing a mask, uh, basically indicating that you shouldn't wear a mask and it's, it's a weakness to wear a mask. That is the antithesis of leadership. That is not leadership. Uh, yeah. That is playing politics. This is no time to play politics. And if Michael, you want the economy back, wear a mask, you'll get it under control, and then you can get the economy fully back. And Michael, from your vantage point, do you, you've got several months of experience now under your belt of treating this. Do you get a sense or do you see evidence even on your own wards that the treatment, the therapeutics, the way the patients are managed when they come in, the, the um, intubation and so on. I mean, do, do you get a sense that we're learning in how we manage this or is the virus still pretty stubborn and isn't really bowing to what we want to do about it? There's sort of a pushback. I mean, or do you think, no, if every week we learn something new, maybe small, but when you put those things together, we are in terms of in the hospital environment and the management of cases of, of, of people coming in, we're getting better at that. Yes, we're absolutely getting better. I mean, we got better every week. Uh, after the first cases came in, we learned an awful lot because at the beginning we didn't know much about it at all. We didn't know how it would react and what it was, uh, what treatments might work. Uh, so we're much better today than we were before. People are much more confident on the floors about how to deal with it. The physicians and the nurses are much, much more confident. We're doing a lot of clinical treatment trials here as every place else is doing. Uh, we have a lot more, um, you know, the better protocols, better guidelines, etc. And so, yes, we're in a much better position today, but the virus does mutate. It does change. There are many strains of this virus. It's not one strain. So it can, it can surprise you, and we've got to be too ready for those kinds of surprises because this is, a, this is an interesting enemy. Uh, it plays guerrilla warfare with you all the time. You think you've got it, and then it disappears, and it comes back another way. Overall, however, we're in a better situation and we're going to be in this circumstance for another 12 months or so. I was going to ask you that. I mean, on the vaccine issue, I mean, you get every single range and span of opinion of we're going to have it before Christmas. We're not going to have it till next end of next year. We're going to have it, but it's not going to be effective, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody really knows, I suppose, is the outcome. But as somebody who's actually seen this disease up close, how optimistic or pessimistic are you about a vaccine response that can be effective? I, I, well, a couple of issues there. I do think we'll have a vaccine by the beginning of the year. Uh, I'd be surprised if we don't. We're not going to have it, I don't believe, before then. Um, now, it depends on which company's vaccine will have gone through the validation process and we don't have it done correctly. Um, we, we, we have to make sure that the vaccine goes through the proper protocols and standards just to make sure that it is safe, as safe as we can make any vaccine. It cannot be politicized as it has been done in this country, because if it is overly politicized, it's going to be very, very difficult to get the public to have confidence in taking it. 
So let's assume it comes out the beginning of the year, and I'm working directly right now with the state of New York, uh, putting together the plan for the, for the distribution of the vaccine. Um, and it's important for the public to understand this, that when there is a vaccine, which I believe there will be, the plan for how you operationalize the distribution of that vaccine is going to be very, very, very important. And I hope Ireland is, has detailed plans about how to do this. First of all, it has to be stored in, in uh, at least some of the vaccines that may come out have to be stored in minus 70 degrees temperature. Uh, you have to have the freezers to do this. It's just like a minor issue, except that it's not that minor when you think about it. But then the first people who get the vaccine will be uh, essential workers and healthcare workers. Then high risk categories of people and have to be defined. The general public, the general healthy, quote unquote, healthy person out on the street, probably will not be able to get the vaccine till much later next year. So it will take most of next year. And then, you know, most polls right now say that about 50% of the people are suspect and are not confident they will take the vaccine. So you will need a massive educational program to convince people, assuming it is done properly, as I said, that they should take the vaccine. And the other thing, by the way, is that people right now should make sure they're vaccinated for the flu. I do think we'll have less of a flu this year because of mask wearing and the flu, the flu incidence of flu in the Southern Hemisphere is very low right now, which is a predictor of what happens in the Northern Hemisphere. But um, uh, you, everybody, just because uh, you are anticipating a vaccine for COVID doesn't mean you shouldn't get the flu vaccine. You should also get the flu vaccine. Now, Michael, New York tough is a phrase everyone uses, even people who've never been to New York. It's to try to sum up the, the resilience yeah. and the robustness of New York and the city. Taking your step, your step out of the hospitals and the healthcare facilities you run, and just looking at the city, it, it, you know, there's not a lot of people on the streets, as we, we can see in the images on television. Uh, Broadway is shut down, pretty much lock, stock and barrel. You know, do you think the city itself can bounce back? And, uh, you know, it will eventually bounce back. But do you think it'll be a long time before that happens? Do you think it's really been kicked around by this crisis? Well, I think that uh, the, uh, this is going to apply to Dublin and Paris and Amsterdam and London and every place, and New York especially. These places will bounce back. But the economic impact of COVID is going to be felt for the next uh, five to ten years. Uh, this is not a quick turnaround uh, we will solve the medical part of the virus issue in the next year or two. But the economic impact is going to last much longer. In direct answer to your question about New York, yes, New York is going to bounce back very strong. It'll take a while. It won't happen next year. It'll take a couple of years. But I'll give you an example. Right after 9-11, lower Manhattan was always pretty empty pre-9-11. When 9-11 happened, the World Trade was, blown, was, was knocked down. Everybody said, Lower Manhattan is finished. Nothing will ever happen. Lower Manhattan, you know, came back unbelievably well. I mean, Lower Manhattan today is a bustling place, much more so than ever, than even before 9-11. So New York is a very resilient, adaptable place, just like Dublin is and London is. They will come back, but it won't happen quickly. And so, you know, there were articles over here about people moving out into the suburbs and everybody saying, oh, everybody in the city is going to move into the suburbs. That's not going to happen. They're going to move to the suburbs, find out that they've got to shovel snow in the winter, and then they'll want to go back into the city pretty quickly. The snow uh, will cure them. <laughs> it's like getting an illness. You know, your body gets an illness. It may take you six months, a month, six months, a year to recover. But you recover strong. Uh, the economy has got an illness. It will recover. 
um, uh, we will provide the treatment to help it recover, but it will recover it by itself. Uh, I, you know, I would not be pessimistic about this at all. You know, we're much better than to succumb uh, to this kind of a pandemic. And we just got to be resilient and adaptable and have the grit and the optimism to be talking about, yes, we will succeed, not walking around saying, oh my God, we're going to be defeated. That's not what you do. Maybe, maybe you'll be asked to lead the Patrick's Day Parade next year if we get a bit clear of this. <laughs> Probably a bit too uh, I early. Think, I think we'll be Zooming again next year. Zooming I mean, I don't brain. think you'll have any major meetings in New York. Um, uh, again, if you're going to comply with what you should comply with, not like what's happening with our leadership at the national level, that yes. is holding big meetings today, which is an abomination. But I think in New York, you won't have any big meetings until at least the fall of next year. Well, Michael, you have been overall optimistic at the end. It's been an incredible struggle. I hope your Irish family and friends are sending you greetings and have been following your <laughs> incredible stellar career over recent years and have sent you a few texts or emails or whatever to keep your spirits up over there. Oh, yeah. You know, you know listen, I, you know, we've all been changed by this. But, um, you know, I'm energized by this. I'm looking at my organization now and saying, and, and saying, okay, now how can I make us better? Yeah, we got hit. We got kicked in the butt. But, you know, it's not what happens to you that matters. It's how you react to it. That's what's important. Um, and so now my organization is saying we're going to be better five years from now than we were pre-COVID. I'm convinced of that. Great, you're a tonic, and thank you so much for coming on Business Impact. It's been great to hear from you, uh, pulling such consolation out of what has been a very difficult period for everybody involved. And thanks for coming on the podcast today. Uh, thank you. Stay positive. <laughs>